Hello and welcome to You Just Got Homeschooled. I'm RJ, and I don't know about you, but this has been a week. Um, not that it's been bad, there's just been a lot going on, which is why it has been almost a week since I've recorded anything and published anything, because it's just been busy. Um, you know, I have five kids, my youngest is now six weeks old, we had that appointment this week, and then homeschooling and work and all sorts of things, and so... And then yesterday was Halloween. Now, I have never been a big Halloween person. Personally, I'm not a, I don't know, I just, I've never cared for it. I don't really like dressing up as, you know, just as an individual. That's not fun for me, at least not in the way that Halloween typically does it. I definitely don't care for scary movies or um, any sort of celebration of death or dying. Um, for various reasons, but I just, it's never been me. And I don't care for most candy, especially not the stuff they give out on Halloween. And if you're not giving out like Reese's and Snickers and stuff like that, I'm kind of like, eh, whatever. So, and my wife and I have been going through a process of just trying to decide, you know, what do we want to celebrate? How do we want to celebrate it? Um, and then the reasoning behind it. And that made me think about how holidays work. Um, in my lifetime, certain holidays have kind of become more prominent and other holidays have shrunk in their um, scope or in their importance. So, for example, Columbus Day was really important when I was a kid. Um, there was lots of stuff around it. And it might have just been that I was in public school and they used it as an opportunity to teach. But it seemed like it was a pretty important day. Same, ta- same thing with uh, the President's Days in February, if you're an American um, you may be aware of those days. Uh, I think that's, I think it's February. And there's two typically long weekends that are given. I think one's for Lincoln's birthday and the other one's for Washington's. But they were relatively important and there was a lot of teaching around with them. And then eventually they kind of flipped a Monday day off to a Friday day off so that there was missing two days. And then they just gave you the rest of the week off. They called it ski week, even though I never went skiing. Um, and most people I knew didn't. And they would just, you know, like give us a whole week off and, and we lost a lot of the stuff. So those holidays had been more important as far as the patriarch or patriotic um, kind of impulse. And then same with Columbus Day, but those have fallen out of favor more so, or at least have been kind of pushed aside and forgotten uh, more so than they had been when I was a kid. And then other holidays have grown. Um, I feel like there is maybe not grown would be the right way to say it, or maybe things like Cesar Chavez Day. Um, if you're a Californian or an American, you might be aware of those. Or there's other days that have that have kind of grown in popularity or become more dynamic. And it made me think about holidays and, and what they are. Um, almost exclusively historically, meaning that like pre-modern state time period, holidays were often created by some sort of religion or they were they had a a strong religious component to them and so they were solstices so that could have been a a, a, either a nature worship or an ancestor worship or some variation thereof or some other construct but there was there's these holidays that were created by religion and it really wasn't until the modern era with modern nation states that you had this con this this kind of state sanctioning um as far as like perpetuating holidays. Now you had some of that in Rome, but you have to remember that all of the Roman political offices were also religious offices for the most part. And so there was especially the higher ones. And so 
it's not that it was simply a um, a political holiday. It was a religious one as well. And I think that this provides an opportunity for us as homeschoolers to really teach about cultures and how cultures and, and people and how we operate and how those things interact. And so we can look at holidays that we now celebrate or are on the calendar, but we don't celebrate that much um, and use them as a teaching opportunity for our kids to not only teach culture and teach history, but how cultures and history intertwine with each other and how sometimes they kind of like, uh, meld and create something that's almost brand new out of it. And then even the impulse of why do we create a holidays? Like what's the purpose of holidays? So for example, Thanksgiving in the United States um, is different than it is in Canada. And I'm not even sure if other countries celebrate it, but it's this, this big day where we stuff ourselves with food. Um, ironically, we use as the centerpiece most of the time a turkey and one of those weird things in history is Benjamin Franklin, who's one of the founding fathers, right, decided or put forward that the turkey should really be the national bird of the United States. But he got overruled and the bald eagle became the national bird of the United States. And so in a twist of fate, we're not eating our national bird on Thanksgiving. But Thanksgiving is not actually a religious holiday. It was never a religious holiday. Um, it was created by Abraham Lincoln following the Battle of Gettysburg as hopefully a way to like help people um, be more intentional about giving thanks given that we were in the middle of a massive civil war um, that ended up taking over half a million people. Um, Well over half a million people were killed. And so it was to remember, not so much remember sacrifice, but to value family and to give thanks for what we have. So it's completely political holiday done for a political reason. Now, that doesn't mean I don't celebrate it. It doesn't mean I don't enjoy it. I love getting together with family. Um, I love the food. I have a hard time not going back to the table full of pies. Uh, but that's just me. But then you have other holidays that are actually weird amalgamations. So Halloween is a great example of why I wanted to talk or what, what sparked the whole conversation in my head and the whole thought process is today, I'm recording on November 1st, Um, today is All Saints Day, which is a religious holiday, um, a Catholic religious holiday predominantly. And it was to, to remember the martyr, the martyrs, right? Those, those Catholics or those Christians that died for their faith. And Halloween was the eve of All Saints Day. Um, and it became kind of a central piece of, um, not necessarily, well, maybe Satan worship. I'm not exactly clear on that, but it became um, a a high holiday for the satanic church or maybe not satanic per se, but the Druidic faith. Um, so if you think of the Druids, which would be uh, pre-Roman or kind of early Roman, uh, Britain and Ireland, Scotland, those areas had the Druids, which are their primary religious thing. And they believed that um, this Halloween was the day that the worlds were nearest the, the afterlife or the, the spiritual realm and the, the modern or the spiritual realm and the, and this world were closest together. And so that was where things could bleed through more easily. And that's where we get a lot of the, the, the dressing up. It started off early on as just masks, like religious masks of demons or of ghosts or of, um, kind of the things that lived in the woods, not like 
actual things, but like the spiritual forces. And it then kind of grew. And now it's a commercialized holiday that it's all about blood and gore and scaring and stuff like that, which you can see the roots back to its druidic heritage. So the question becomes, what happened in culture, especially in a, in a, because this, it started to grow, Halloween started to grow as a commercial holiday in a, what I would say most people would consider a Christian America in particular. So what happened that allowed this celebration of a other faith's belief system or belief in this otherworldly, what happened to allow um, what might be characterized as a, sat- a satanic celebration to come the day before one of the one of maybe the third or fourth most holy days in Catholic, like Catholic um, mindset of, of All Saints Day. And why did it become commercialized and part of everyday society? And why do we have it the way that we have it? And so, and I don't have all the answers to this, but it does make you wonder, make you think and provide a great opportunity to teach your kids not only what's going on, but where it came from. And then they can begin to see the threads of history, the threads of society, the threads of culture. What allows it? Why is it that it started out as masks to celebrate um, uh, a thin spot in the real world, spiritual world continuum, or like, you know, where those two worlds are colliding. And that started as masks, and then it became costumes, and you could go all sorts of places. And then it added in um, my guess is it took the rituals of sacrifice from the Druidic and turned them into giving um, candy to kids, like through who knows what. But we can we can trace that. We can go back and you know study the history and then teach that to our kids and and talk about those those places where the things of the past become the things of the present, and oftentimes we don't understand why. Right? Um, I don't remember where I heard the story first, but there's this there's a story that I've heard over and over again that's kind of exemplifies traditions and a, a a newly married couple are you know in their first home and it's their first I don't know which holiday it's supposed to be but basically probably Christmas giving us they're their cutting ham um, or roast and basically the wife goes to make the roast and the husband goes you have to cut the ends off and she goes why do you have to cut the ends off we never cut the ends off and he goes well you have to cut the ends off that's what we do in our family and so we're like well why do you do that and he goes and asks his mom and goes, why do you cut the ends off the roast? And he goes, because that's what your grandma did. Right. And so he goes and asks grandma, why did you cut the ends off the roast? And she goes, because it didn't fit in the pan otherwise. So in his mind, this tradition was one that that's how you do it. You have to cut the ends off the roast. Otherwise it's not done correctly. In all reality, it started with something ridiculous or just mundane, right? That the roast I had didn't fit in the pan. So I cut the ends off, but to his mom, it became a tradition and to him, it became a tradition. And I think there's lots of things in our society that are like that. We just follow them because they're what's considered normal. And that's not necessarily bad, but I think we have a huge opportunity as homeschool parents to go and do some research and to teach our kids so that they can choose wisely the traditions they want to choose. So for example, we have a family tradition in my family um, that every year in our stockings at Christmas time, we get an apple and an orange and a toothbrush. 
and other stuff. But those are the things that are always there. And it harkens back to my dad only receiving um, his dad. They were poor, um, really poor. And so their Christmas present up until he was probably in middle school as a family, six kids, was his dad would go buy a case, like one of those fruit boxes for, like from the grocery store, a case of apples and a case of oranges. And that was their collective Christmas present was apples and oranges for Christmas. So we get them in our stockings um, to remind us. And I don't know that my siblings care, but I care as the oldest of my, of my siblings. And I care to share it with my kids. So as a marker to remember where our family has come from and a remembrance to be grateful for what we have, everything following the stocking, right? Because in my house, my house growing up, um, you could open your stocking whenever you got up on Christmas morning, but you could not open presents until everyone was up and out. And so um, it's just that reminder. And I want my kids to, to carry that with them. There's an apple and an orange because grandpa grew up with only an apple and an orange. So anything that comes after this, we ought to be grateful for. So um, to go on to Christmas, I love Christmas. It is by far my favorite holiday. And for lots of reasons, one, there's the magic of Christmas. One, there's the lights and stuff like that. And I'm not typically a showy person. I don't wear bright colors because I don't want people to look at me. Um, but I love Christmas and I love the food. I love the, the music that comes with it. I love all of it. And as I grew older and began to understand some of the traditions of Christmas, it, it, I think it actually aided my appreciation for the holiday. So, for example, um, Christmas as a date, December 25th, was basically constructed by the Christian church. And it really was functionally to cover over a, a, a non-Christian holiday. Now, that does not, in my mind, demean its value at all. The likelihood that Jesus of Nazareth was born on December 25th is really low. But I'm not sure that God cares so much <laughs> um, when you choose to celebrate his birthday. Uh, and so it, that doesn't bother me. And then there's other things about Christmas that don't bother me either that if I were to look into its origins might bother me more if I didn't have a different take on it. So for example, um, pagan Germany had a celebration um, during the winter solstice of cutting down or of uh, decorating an evergreen tree because evergreens obviously are evergreen. And so during the depths of winter, it was a, a pagan fertility rite. And so they would, you know, basically decorate this tree. And then come Christianity, um, the predominantly the German populations converts to Christianity and almost completely. And they take that same symbol, right? They cut it down, they drag it inside and they put candles on it. And stick a, a star, like the star that, that led the, the three wise men to Jesus, or an angel. And there's lots of variations of this, and it, and it may not be perfect in its historical accuracy. But ultimately, what you see is the subjection of, in my mind, a subjection of a pagan fertility rite into a Christian context. Why does that happen? What changed in culture? Why did the religion change? The, like, for Germans, I would assume that this evergreen tree and the ceremony was really, really important. They didn't want to completely lose it, so they transformed it, right? They, they changed it a little bit, and they, they adopted it to their new religion. And you see this across the world and across culture and across time, 
right? And not just with holidays, not just with religious things. For example, um, as a non-religious adoption of things, when Europeans in the, the age of exploration first approached China, China basically said, we don't need anything from you. We don't want to talk to you. Go away. And they did this repeatedly. Um, and then, you know, the, the British in particular and the Dutch were really persistent. And they said, okay, we'll let you in, but we only buy, or you're only allowed to buy stuff with gold and silver. And they did that and they did that and they did that. And, and, but they were resistant to all European culture, all European technological developments, all that stuff. They said, we don't need it. We don't want it. You have nothing to offer us. Meanwhile, or I should say shortly thereafter, um, an American gunship under, uh, I think it was Commodore Perry, an American gunship sails into Tokyo Bay or the harbor there. And the Japanese do the exact same thing. We don't want you. Get away from us. You don't have anything that we need. And he proceeds to open fire with the cannons. Now, granted, it was a show of force, and that's what it was intended to do. But the difference between the Chinese, even though they persisted in, in the Chinese persisted in pushing out the, the Europeans, unless they were offering gold, until the Europeans switched from gold to opium, and then eventually just cracked open the Chinese market with force. And the, the Chinese still maintained they had nothing to offer. The Japanese, upon seeing the gunships and seeing um, pocket watches and eyeglasses, took a completely different tact. So they, upon seeing these technological developments, say, wait a second, those could be really helpful. So they began to open up, but they limited their opening. opening. And not due to, or not in the sense that the Chinese did, which is like, you can only give us this type of thing, but opened it up and said, we're basically going to take these things and make them Japanese. So they were very intentional about taking specific technologies, inviting specific uh, experts into their culture or into their country to teach them specific things, but they made them very Japanese. Right. And so, but it allowed them to far surpass China in the same time frame um, as far as economy and technological development, because they said, you know what? We have all these people who are skilled in their field, but they no longer can see adequately. Bring in eyeglasses. Now I have someone who can't do the, who couldn't do the job a year ago because he couldn't see well enough to do it. And now he's able to do it for the next 20 years. I now increase my, effective workforce, right? Mechanical watches, uh, small machine work, bringing people to teach them to do mechanical watches. They get good at that, right? We know this from our own culture. If you're an American or if you're, you know, like even in the West, you knew that, especially after World War II, you see the same thing where they started taking and kind of knocking off a bunch of technology, VCRs, cars, even automobiles, where it'd be like, oh, we're just going to take what you have and make a different version of it. And we'll maybe improve it a little bit, right? Um, there's a podcast that I've listened to over the last decade called Hardcore History. And um, it's a great podcast. You get a chance. The episodes are incredibly long, but they are really good. And he was talking about the Japanese in one of the more recent episodes that I listened to. And he was parroting someone else. But what was being parroted is the Japanese are just like everyone else, except more so. Meaning that they take everything to a little bit more extreme. And you see that in their cultural progression. And you see that, as an, like I'm saying with holidays, right? They took something that was Western 
and made it sort of Western, but very Japanese. We can see that with their style. We can see that with their culture, even. Um, what they do, they adopt certain things and make them and take those things and make them Japanese. And we do that with, with holidays, right? And we, we're missing an opportunity when we're not expressing those to our kids, when we're not showing them um, and, and helping them understand that culture really isn't something that's made by a particular people group or a particular language. It's actually a combination of. And, and we choose, our cultures choose, sometimes actively, sometimes inactively, to take in new constructs, new thought processes, new products, new um, opportunities, and make them part, a core part of their culture. Another great example of that is when we think of Ireland, oftentimes we think of potatoes, but Ireland existed without potatoes for most of history. Potatoes came after the Columbian exchange. Potatoes are traditionally a Peruvian crop. And so they didn't come till after the exploration of the new world. And those potatoes were brought back. Same with corn, right? Cassava is a new world crop, but it's the, the staple crop of much of Africa. And so, and, and if you ask African, they think it's African, but it's not, right? It's not African. And so, like, it's important, I think, for us to just attend to those type of things, to look at them, to consider them when we're teaching our kids, and to teach that, that the origins of things are a little bit different. Tomatoes are an American crop, and yet when we think of Italian food, at least in the United States, we think of Italian food, we think of, like, marinara sauce, red sauce. Well, how do you get red sauce without potatoes? Or, I mean, without tomatoes, right? You don't. And so, why don't we... Like, we don't teach those things. We don't think about those things. And yet, the exchange of goods, of technologies, is hugely important to the development of a culture. When we, in North America at least, think of the Plains Indians, we think of them on horseback. Those were brought over by Europeans. There was no horses in the New World. And yet, our quintessential um, Plains Indian is riding a horse, but they had only adopted that culture for less than a couple hundred years before Western settlers really encountered them in any mass. Yet their entire culture had changed based on the, this new opportunity to be mounted on horseback. So um, I just wanted to, I it was running through my mind. And so I wanted to bring that up to you. I wanted to present it to you and just, you know, take a little bit of time, research the holidays. Um, figure out why they're there. Why is it that we don't celebrate Columbus Day the way we used to? And it might be because we've discovered that the Vikings got here 500 years before Columbus. They got to North America 500 years and set up settlements. They weren't long-lasting settlements, but they set up dozens of settlements, trading posts, basically, where people lived at least seasonally, but oftentimes, or at least seemingly, for more than a year at a time, um, for at least a couple decades. So, What's going on? Like, why, why do holidays, you know, what's going on culturally that now we value something we didn't value or now we value something less than we valued before? And that provides us many opportunities to talk to our kids about what, what goes on in history, how cultures change, what the shifts are like. Why do we do it? 
Why is it that the word for coffee is the word for coffee in English and in German? Right? It's basically the sim- you know, almost a similar word. Why is it that English is this weird amalgamation of Greek and Latin roots and then a whole bunch of words that come from a whole bunch of different languages? Right? And how cultures can shift and how they're, 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 they have general cultures, but then you have more local cultures, right? Accents are a great example of that. Um, I know, I grew up in Southern California. I live in Southern California currently. I know if someone's not from around here, if they pronounce certain words that have a double L in them with an L sound instead of a Y sound, right? Tortilla, right? Um, if you're not from a place that, <laughs> that has a heavy Hispanic uh, or heavy Spanish um, influence, you're going to look at things like tortilla and say tortilla or quesadilla and say quesadilla, right? Um, and, and that's just a product of local culture or, or shorter culture, smaller culture, uh, more local culture. Another great example of that is in my area, we don't talk about distance or from place to place in physical distance. It's not a measurement of miles, it's a measurement of time. And that was brought up to me just because someone asked, uh, uh, a friend of mine at school asked one day, it's like, oh, I heard that you guys don't like talk in distance. And I was like, you're right, I don't. I don't ever, I don't ever say, oh, when someone says to me, oh, how far away is such and such? I don't say, oh, it's 15 miles. I'll say it's 25 minutes. And I don't even think about it, but that's something that was brought up to me um, from outside, someone who doesn't share that particular subculture. And we have the opportunity as parents to point those things out. And, and there's a little bit of pride in, in having a culture that you understand and a little bit of curiosity that's built when you understand that other people don't live the same way. They don't think the same way. They don't operate the same way. They don't eat the same types of food. Um, they don't, what's normal to them is not normal to other people. And so then that you can use that curiosity to drive them or to encourage them to, to seek education, right? To, to go find and discover that maybe they've never tried something that they might actually really like. And because they realize that there's an entire other culture that enjoys it, it gives them this like, oh, other people like it. Maybe I will too. And maybe you try it and you don't like it and that's okay. And that's, but it's a learning experience. And so I want to encourage you to look into the holidays you celebrate, to look into the origins of things, even your own origins. What do you eat? What words do you use? Um, family local, you know, city, state, country, um, larger cultural, or, you know, like we would say like the West or the East, right? And what are the hallmarks of those things? What makes them quintessentially such and such? And, and research them and, and, and teach through it. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Um, please like, subscribe, hit the buttons, do the things, um, leave a review if you get a chance. Check out our website, uh, youjustgothomeschool.com. Or follow us on Instagram and follow us on Instagram at you just, or sorry, homeschooled podcast. That one always catches me. I hope you have a great day. Bye.